As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and my good friend, Danny Abdeljabar. What's up, man? How are you? Chilling, man, as per usual. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty well. I have this uh, beer. This So I got like a variety pack of Bitburgers oh. today. Okay. And uh, you ever have Bitburger? I have. I do quite like Bitburger. What uh, flavor are you drinking? So this is quite an odd flavor. It is called... Bitburger Radler Natterub. Oh, I love Radlers. It's like it's a, a like a lemon or a lime kind of beer flavor, right? It's lemon flavored. It's like a shandy. It's like a shandy, and I feel kind of weird about it. I look like behind, it? Mm. and it is one point nine percent alcohol. Oh man, slow down, Henry. You don't want to get wasted. That is no. way too much for me. Yeah, I can't I be just, having uh, that much that much alcohol while we're doing a podcast <laughs> i just recently picked up a variety I'm, I'm i really dig variety packs by the way how many different versions uh like how many different flavors did you get i think there's only three there's okay. this monstrosity then there's the regular bit burger and then there's a, a like a black lager mm. if you're into uh ipas i just picked up a box of um it was like a 12 pack or a 24 pack something like that of uh, victory ipas and it came like four or five different versions uh, and I liked them all except for the sour, but I don't really like sour beers anyway. So, um, yeah, my recommendation to you. I'm a big fan of sour beers, the way they taste, but they give me incredible acid reflux. So I can't, I can't <laughs> really can't drink, drink them. them, but I, I love them. I used to love them. But um, all right, let's get into uh, today's topic because uh, we have a lot to talk about. Um, there's, again, we're recording on Wednesday, January 20th. Uh, a very slow political day. Um, there's, there's, there's absolutely nothing going on. There really hasn't been going anything going on politically for the past month or so. Um, I'm starting really to get worried about it. I'm, I'm, I'm a little worried, actually. It's too quiet. It is too quiet. It's weird. It is too quiet. Maybe we'll talk about some some things uh, at the end of the show. But um, yeah. right yeah. now, there's just there's nothing to talk about. Nope. So we're just going to keep talking about ancient history, I guess. We're, I guess we're going to keep on talking about ancient history. And today's, this is, this episode, it's not going to conclude our like overall uh, commitment to bring these types of episodes out. But I think this is going to be the last episode in this, in this string of episodes uh, dedicated to uh, history in the BCs, um, ancient history. Um, I think we're going to be- Before COVID? Uh, yeah, before COVID, <laughs> we're going to be doing some more episodes on on more modern history and, and switching back or forth. We're not abandoning this idea because we really enjoy doing these shows, but we're going to switch up our our uh, time periods a little bit. 
or maybe not. Maybe we'll get inspiration from another idea on, on ancient history and we'll, and we'll continue in this field. Who knows? We'll see where it goes. Um, yeah. The world is full. This, this podcast can be full of surprises sometimes. But what we're talking about today is Alexander the Great, mm. the guy who is known as perhaps the greatest military commander of all time. The man who forged an empire stretching over three continents, yep. from Greece to India to Egypt. And he did this in just 13 years. Super fast. So I'm a huge fan of Dan Carlin, and um, I'm a hardcore history fan. And there's one of his first episodes ever was called Alexander vs. Hitler. And what he does is he makes the case that the people of his time that Alexander conquered, they probably viewed Alexander the same way we view Hitler today. We're gonna, so we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna have to talk about that because that's that's a that's a big claim. I haven't actually listened to this episode, but um, knowing what I what I know now after doing the research, like I can see where he's going. But we're gonna have to come back to that and, and the see. The point is, is not to exonerate or venerate Hitler in any ways. Mm -hmm. You know how Alexander the Great is venerated in a lot of ways in popular right. history. The point was to say it's a perspective thing. So right. the people that Alexander the Great slaughtered, because he slaughtered a hundreds lot. of thousands of people, mm -hmm. probably thought of him along the same lines as how we view a dictator, uh, you know, a, a genocidal maniac in the 20th century. Right. That's what I mean, he was we're, we're definitely going to need to take Alexander down a peg, for sure, <laughs> because I think most people um, think about and view Alexander the Great as almost this like, you know, kind of like you can't really touch him. He's like perfect. He's, you know, a conqueror or the best, you know, that there is and like super skilled at war and all this other stuff. Um, I think the reality of it probably tells a different, a completely different story, though. Um, and that, that's, I guess, what the what the content of this episode will be about. Taking yeah. him down a peg. <laughs> taking him down a peg, but not necessarily taking him down a peg. It's more so to do a little bit more of a deep dive and, and just maybe ask some questions about not only Alexander the Great as a person, um, as a military commander, but more so kind of his psychology, which is an impossible task that we're doing right here. So, right. you know, we're, we're speculating a, on a lot of fan things. fan fiction at this point. <laughs> yeah. In making assumptions based off uh, ancient historians and... and uh, you know, mm -hmm. kind of, you know, regurgitating claims from current modern historians. But um, I think this will be interesting. Um, despite his accomplishments, he was a mass murderer. And he was also a rage-filled, paranoid alcoholic who would exterminate entire populations. He would frequently engage in ethnic cleansing. Um, in addition, he would not just murder political rivals, but would assassinate members of his family um, his friends, really at the drop of the dime. Just so one too many Bitburgers, I guess, right? <laughs> one too many Bitburgers. So for the most part, in history, when I was growing up, I went to I went to Catholic school, and mm. um, I don't know if it had to do with the Catholic education, but I think there might be a tradition in, in kind of uh, Judeo Christian type uh, educational curriculums to venerate him as somebody who you know, linked the world together and made it possible for Christianity to thrive. At least that's mm -hmm. the way that we were taught it. Taught it. Right. Um, you know, he, he's credited as linking the East and the West together. Kind of like how uh, Genghis Khan was credited of doing the same thing. 
Right. And what his atrocities are, they're justified as strategic decisions. Mm -hmm. And we're warned not to judge these ancient figures through the lens of morality in our modern times, which is fair enough because everyone was an asshole back then. Everyone was conquering and slaughtering and doing obscene things and... Exactly. Just listen um, to the last couple of episodes that we've done on ancient history and you'll get a sense for that, for sure. Exactly. Like every ancient conqueror was slaughtering innocent people and all these guys were murdering their political rivals. All these guys were assholes by today's standards and by their own standards at that time as well. For example, look at Julius Caesar. Caesar slaughtered so many people in Gaul and Germania that even Roman senators condemned his actions. Mm-hmm. Like when Caesar executed over 400,000 German tribesmen, and those are Caesar's numbers, so it was probably not 400,000 tribesmen, but he said he executed 400,000 German tribesmen in one of his campaigns. The Roman Senate was like, what the fuck are you doing, man? Like, that's an absolute, (laughs) that's one of the worst atrocities that we've ever heard about. Right. Like, so even Rome... This Roman Senate condemned a lot of his war crimes. Um, and according to Caesar, like the way that he justified it was that it was a strategic decision. I mean, you know, even in the modern period, we have plenty of examples of this. I mean, you could even point some fingers at the U.S. and all of the collateral damage that we've done uh, as a result of the many wars on terrorism uh, that we've done. But those were considered strategic decisions to bomb the shit out of a, you know, wedding or some shit like that with a predator missile you know so so like yeah like you know i get when people say that you know we shouldn't you know judge these ancient figures you know uh through like our current you know standards on morality but if you really want to go there we kind of can judge them because we can judge ourselves in the same way you know these people weren't different they didn't have different (laughs) dna no. If you put somebody in our society or and you switch them with somebody from Macedonian society. If you put, if you put John Bolton in like ancient Macedon, <laughs> he would have done the same shit. <laughs> he, he would have done probably worse. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the purpose of this episode is not, I guess it is not to judge the, not, I guess we are going to do some judging, and, but and, Just a little and, bit. Uh, I guess taking down some, some sacred cows. Uh, but I, I'm more interested in diving into the factors of what made these people so violent mm-hmm. and what lessons we can ultimately learn. For sure. I think that you guys will get a lot out of this dive into Alexander's background, especially his mental instability and paranoia and what appears to be PTSD and possibly even CTE, mm-hmm. um, which were all exaggerated by his addiction to alcohol. Right. So... The first thing to to touch is that here's a theme that we were going over frequently over the past few weeks, um, and that's the problem with ancient sources. And now right. we just have to address it again. Um, of all the subjects in the study of ancient history, especially ancient military history, uh, few topics have really been covered uh, more than the conquest of Alexander the Great. Right. What makes this interesting is that there are only five basic ancient sources on Alexander. And only one which was written during Alexander's lifetime. So the sources that we're going to be using and we're going to be referring to are Diodorus uh, Siculus, who was a Greek Sicilian 
uh, from the first century BC, so about 200 years after Alexander. Mm-hmm. And then we have uh, Quint- uh, Quintus Curtius, a Roman who we don't really know where he lived, but we think he lived in the first century AD. Uh, Plutarch, who we've been using pretty much throughout the past two episodes, who was a Greek um, in the Roman Empire in the first century AD. And then Arian, another Greek who lived in, in the Roman Empire in the first century AD. So all the writers uh, that we're going to be primarily using are going to be Rome, Greeks or Romans who lived about 200 years or the 300 years after Alexander had already died. Correct. So right. there's a problem there already. They're not writing from, you know, they're not. From first-hand this is not, These aren't first-hand sources. Right. We do have one first-hand source, and that source is Nearchus, one of his childhood friends and an officer in his army. That, that's where we're getting our primary source. And um, the most reliable source actually, that historians will, will often consider is Arian. The reason why they say he is the most reliable source is because um, he's on CNN. Oh! <laughs> Burn. Uh, because apparently he drew upon accounts from, uh, from Alexander's senior staff. So... These guys mm-hmm. had access to stuff that we don't have access today, and you know right. they were using different sources. Um, so that's that's the claim. But I'm even a, still, it's still secondhand accounts, right? So he's just referring to uh, a senior staff, <laughs> you know, accounts it, by the senior staff. So it's never it's never really like right right then and there. So it's it's tricky. Exactly, but you know you got to do what you can, and you got to see what who matches who and who is summarizing the other historian and uh, or just straight uh, up pick the funnest story. I have one of or those pick, or pick, pick. The, 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 pick the story that has the, the best movie appeal. Right. <laughs> um, and this is how the, the main point is when you, when we look at ancient history, we're, we're left with the historian's own interpretation of these sources. And these historians depend on the same sources as other historians. And this is how you get at least 5,000 different books in Alexander the Great. Right. Um, one of the primary books that I used and I've read for this is a really controversial book, actually, um, called The Madness of Alexander the Great and the Myth of Military Genius um, by a military writer. Uh, I believe he's an ex-doctor uh, in the army and now a, an ancient military historian uh, named Richard Gabriel. And I read actually three of his books in preparation for the show, along with some some other uh, books in Alexander the Great as well, and some ancient and the and the ancient sources. Um, so, you know, I'm going to be repeating a lot of the talking points out of this book just because I found I'm not I don't I don't even necessarily agree with all of them, uh, or can prove them right or wrong. I just found the book really interesting. Um, so I'll I'll leave the book in the uh, in the show notes. But I guess the, to start this off, uh, to really understand who Alexander the Great was, we need to go back and we need to understand where he came from. Mm-hmm. Now, where he came from was a kingdom called Macedonia or Macedonia. You know, you can call it either or. Um, I call them, um, I call them um, interchangeably. So I'll sometimes refer to it Macedonia and sometimes I'll call it Macedonia. I don't know why. I think the rule is that you're supposed to be consistent, but I am it's not pronounced- consistent. It's and, pronounced GIF. <laughs> and many times I uh, will pronounce names incorrectly in two different ways, inconsistently. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, Macedonia, which most, most people call it, is northeast of the Greek peninsula. 
Um, interesting enough, the name Macedonia has been the name of that region basically forever. It's been referred to in the Old Testament. It's been referred in ancient sources for, for thousands of years, which is really quite incredible because there's not a single other nation state that you can claim has the same name as for all that time right. for all that time mm-hmm. like france wasn't wasn't called france 2000 nope. years ago so it was called gaul right exactly or whatever the hell they called it. that's what the romans called it like they don't right. we don't even i don't know what they called it themselves. we don't know what the like the tribes people called it if they even called it one thing at, at in and of itself it was probably just many things many smaller yeah. things and then it was francia and then it was you know it wasn't really france until until much later on Macedonia was divided between northern highlands, referred to as Upper Macedonia, and then coastal plains referred to as Lower Macedonia. Mm. And this area was very abundant in natural resources. So it had rich farmland. It had great plains to to raise animals. So their horses there were bigger and stronger. Mm. Um, They had large deposits of precious metals. And they had access to a lot of trees and a lot of timber. That's right. So they they also had coastlines, lots of them, and they had the land bridge to Asia Minor. So you know it was it was a good um, trade route as well. And that land bridge, though, and uh, this will kind of segue into the next point I wanted to make. That land bridge actually caused them a lot of issues during the Greco Persian <laughs> the Greco Persian Wars because when Persia invaded Greece, they that Macedonia was the first place that they conquered. Mm-hmm. Or they at least subjugated and made and turned into a vassal state, right? Um, because of their location, sandwiched between Greek city states and, and the European continent, uh, they were surrounded by hostile neighbors. Mm-hmm. And because of their natural resources, they became the target of frequent incursions. So when a country is located on a borderland or in a marshland or um, within an area that is just surrounded by a lot of unfriendly people who would like to fight, the people there tend to become very warlike. Right, right. Think the Sumerians or the Akkadians um, from our previous uh, episodes. Very similar situation. Or think Germans. Mm Mm-hmm. Also a very good one, yeah. You could think in a modern context, you can say Germans, that um, when a society is... Uh, doesn't have those natural geographic protectors. The people are forced to adopt a a warlike society to right. protect themselves, right. uh, because then they'll just be prey. Especially if they're rich and rife with you know natural resources, because then everybody wants to come and take your shit. Yeah, exactly. So, according to Herodotus, another another uh, histor- ancient historian, we have been referring to a lot. Um, there were three different warring parties in the Peloponnesian Wars. And the way that he, I love the way that he describes this. So you had the Peloponnesian city-states, so that's Athens and Thebes and Sparta, all those city-states that we know of. Right. And then we have uh, Gaul, um, Illyrian barbarians, so pretty much anyone in Europe, in mainland right. Europe. Northern Europe, yeah. And then Macedonians, who he says are not city-states, or barbarians. He says that there's something in between. So the people who settled there, they spoke a form of Greek, 
but they develop their own unique Macedonian dialect. By the time of Alexander, it was his own language. The Greeks considered Macedonia as basically the boonies. Right, um, middle of know, nowhere. It was the middle of nowhere, and it was inhabited by savages. Um, it's funny because most, when I was in school, I was taught this history, or at least when I was like in high school, I was taught this history as if Alexander was a Greek. But in fact, he wasn't Greek. His father was Macedonian, and his mother, Olympus, played by Angelina Jolie, was <laughs> an Illyrian barbarian. Right. Um, and Alexander slaughtered Greeks the same way he slaughtered Persians, Afghans, and Indians. Right. He didn't really care. Mm-mm. So when historians say that Alexander brought Greek culture to Persia, I mean, I don't really think that's the case because, in fact, it was the opposite. Alexander himself, he adopted you know, the Persian dress code and, the, and their, their kind of culture inclinations rather than bring uh, Greek culture to the East. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a little complicated. I, you're definitely right about him dressing like a Persian, um, but uh, Alexander did kind of bring Greek culture everywhere, but not not on purpose, more like as a result of his system of, of like governing his empire. But we'll talk more about that later. According to Richard Gabriel, because of Macedonia's geographic isolation, I'm quoting him, in many ways, the Macedonia of Alexander's day very much resembled the society of the Mycenaean Age, a male-dominated warrior society that had long since died out in Greece proper. Mm-hmm. Alexander's world was a world of clan warriors, barons, where the Iliad was not just an ancient heroic tale, but reflected how men lived. If you froze the Iliad in time, centuries before the Persian Wars or the Peloponnesian Wars. Um, And they were kind of like this manly, masculine culture who were in tune with the gods. And you had characters like Achilles and Hercules. And um, these were the type of uh, gods that were were worshipped. Macedonia at this time was a a superstitious warrior culture. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they still had things like witches and sorcerers. Sorcerers. Alexander's mom, played by Angelina Jolie, was believed to have worshipped snakes. She was like a snake queen. Yeah, that checks out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think Angelina Jolie in real life worships snakes. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. I think it totally checks out. (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised. For for example, um, they didn't practice the the reason-based medicine um, that came from Greek city-states at the time. You know, they would have like spiritual priests do some sort of like wackadoo healing or animal <laughs> sacrifice when someone was like battle fatigued or hurt and things like that. It actually led to a lot of unnecessary deaths in in, in those armies. Well, you know, but, they they uh, they called the weak that way, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but but they were heavy drinkers. Um, the Greeks were actually disgusted by them because they would not dilute their wine. Um, they would frequently get into bar fights or drinking fights, um, Alexander was reportedly or allegedly almost killed by his father in a bar fight, <laughs> Philip II. Well, we'll get more to him. We'll talk about him, yeah. Um, and they had a warrior tradition. So, you know, they were, they had, um, you know, things like boar hunts for young men. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they would have all types of symbols that they would have to wear until they killed a boar or killed their first man in battle. Um, you know, those sorts of things. 
And then they were also like very sexually provocative. So, you know, so they would they'd go out and hump a lot. <laughs> it sounds like they would get along really well with uh, Robert Baratheon. Drinking and boozing and whoring. <laughs> Just the whore is pregnant. Girls and cracked skulls. <laughs> My war hammer came down with the might of ten men. Um, yeah. That's what, I, that's what I imagine it. Despite this, though, so uh, as I said before, Macedonia was rich with natural resources and it had a large population. Despite this, prior to the 4th century BC, they were still not a military power. They were not a military power due to basically their backward social structures. Mm-hmm. Who's fucking texting me over and over again? And maybe shut that off. Sorry. <laughs> Oopsie daisy. Sorry about that. So they were not a, they had backward uh, social structures um, and they had problems within their military as well. So the main one being is that they were unbalanced. They were cavalry focused. Hmm. Um, they didn't really utilize their infantry well. Nobles neglected their their uh, military significance. It was very much a cavalry. Uh, Bunch of crazy horse people. <laughs> exactly. Horse fighters. Um, and that's good in some cases, but it, it, they clearly were just kind of a not very one well trick organized pony type yeah. of thing. One trick pony, literally. Not well organized. <laughs> yeah. Um, in addition, they had a lot of internal division. So they had a lot of local dynasties from um, Upper Macedonia, for example, that would refuse to obey the authority of the Aegead, the Macedonian monarchy. And the Aegead themselves would even fight amongst each other. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of internal division. There wasn't this unifying uh, nation state yet. Um, and then there was also the fact that they were surrounded from all sides. Right. So they were surrounded by the Thracians to the east. That's where Alexander's mom is from, Olympus, um, who were seen as even more bar- – they were actually seen as barbarians. And bar- barbarian just means that someone who doesn't speak Greek or Latin, just bar, 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 bar. Right. That's, That's how, how the story the goes. Right. Mm-hmm. That's how the story goes. So um, – to the east, they had the Thracians. Um, they had the Tribalian Gauls to the north, the Illyrian Gauls to the west, and then to the bottom, they had Greek city-states. Here's a quote from um, a historian named Basil Cholov. So the history of Macedonia until the rise of Philip II could be described as a random shift of periods of unity and periods of anarchy. When a king from a powerful Aegea dynasty succeeded to eliminate or overcome all his rivals and quell the power of dynasties in Upper Macedonia, the country experienced higher stability, progress, and increasing development. Then it had greater impact on neighboring and distant regions of Macedonia, the Macedonian coast, and the entire Macedonian peninsula. But when the powerful king would have died, often killed, many candidates fought for the throne and weakened the power of Macedonia, which in such situations was threatened and frequently ridded by external Moriters. Yeah, no, I think it's it. That is um, that cycle is what kept them down for so many hundreds of years, and why you know a lot of the Greeks really didn't bat an eye at them for a very long time. Exactly. So they were just kind of like this unstable, borderline nomadic type people who didn't have the ability to you know form a successful. Mm, they just you no know, monopoly get their on their together. local violence. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. So um, that dynamic doesn't really change until Philip II, the the great king of Macedonia and the father of Alexander. Mm-hmm. Um, Philip was taken as a hostage by Thebes after a, fa- a failed campaign by his older brother, Alexander II, um, who's not Alexander the Great as Alexander III. Um, at this time, Macedonia was a punching bag. So Thebes was a, Thebes was a dominant city-state at that time. And may have had the best infantry in the world. Um, they they may have even been better than Sparta at that time. The and as a hostage <laughs> in Thebes, Philip had the opportunity to learn a lot more about the phalanx and how to implement infantry into his into his uh, cavalry based military. Uh, when he goes back to Macedonia and becomes king after his brother dies. He implements the, the Greek phalanx and, and everything that he learned in Thebes into the Macedonian army uh, with a bunch of other reforms. And a, a lot of historians consider Philip you know, one of the great kings and generals of all time. Um, it's interesting because he was actually installed as a king during an emergency situation. So due to a, every single time you know, some king gets killed— you know, usually there is an emergency to replace them and who's going to be the heir. And, you know, especially if it was unexpected, like, what are we going to do? So he was the brother and he the the uh, succession went to him um, and, and it, it had to go to him because at that time, Macedonia was going through an ex- a really big crisis um, due to the transfer of power. All of the surrounding neighbors were ready to pounce on them. Because they were, they saw them as unstable, and he immediately started training a professional military force and um, implementing a bunch of political reforms. He had to uh, centralize power to himself because a lot of the local no- noblemen had a lot of power as well. He didn't want to rely on like noblemen and aristocrats to to call his army. So, in addition to this, he also gave citizenship to the people he conquered. Therefore, they were able to raise larger armies and, um, you know, kind of pull different resources from different people. And Macedonia came to be to mean being anyone who lived within the territory of which the king exercised direct political control. And what this creates is, you know, maybe the first prototype of a nation state in European history. For sure. For sure. Now we can do an entire podcast on the on uh, Philip's military reform. So let's just I'm going to try to keep this brief. As we've mentioned, the Macedonian infantry prior to Philip kind of sucked. Uh, they had good cavalry, but their infantry was was very far <clears throat> behind Greek city states. So he implements what he learned in Thebes as a hostage into his own units. So what he starts to to bring is the the phalanx formation. Um, you know, he starts uh, fitting his army with better better armor, and then they uh, also start using the, you know, that four to six meter long pike called a sarissa that has two sides that you can kind of jam into the ground. Mm-hmm. It's really really long and, and you know, menacing. Super useful. Yeah. When if it's, it's like used correctly. With, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But m- most importantly, he creates this uh, this military school like West Point resulting in them having a really good officer corps. And, and with these military reforms, with the addition of the, their superior cavalry, because now they have the cavalry with 
this revamped infantry and an officer corps and improved logistics and things like that. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance Podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. Just an overall reform. Um, Philip conquers all of Greece, with, with the exception of Sparta. Yeah, and, and the, he, the whole story around that is is super interesting. And, and I kind of went down a rabbit hole on on this one. Um, yeah, he he actually Philip started conquering his neighbors right after he revamped that military as you said because now he's got all these like fun toys and things like that to play with so he started with Thessaly and then Thrace and then Melosia which were in his direct um in his direct uh peripheries and he added them to the uh Macedonian empire but he he had a lot of trouble with Greece um mostly because um Athens and Thebes still had like pretty big territories and you know had a lot of control in the region and if you remember um prior to this point Macedon, Macedonia kind of sucked uh, militarily. So um, I think that that probably was to both their benefit and their detriment, to the Macedonian benefit and detriment. And on the one hand, it was to their benefit because nobody would have expected them to come down and smash them. <laughs> but uh, on the other hand, I think it also uh, made it harder for people to come towards uh, the Macedonian fray, right? Like, why would, why would people want to join up with the Macedonians? They're crazy savage barbarian people um but i think slowly started dismantling you know that that kind of greek hegemony um but I, I think the thing about the greeks and you know we've talked about this uh, a little bit in previous episodes is that while they definitely fight amongst themselves a lot they have a tendency of like getting together and fighting against external invasions right so like hitting them head on and just like straight up you know trying to conquer them probably wasn't a great idea. So Philip used uh, kind of an interesting tactic, which was to use the wealth that his empire uh, was gaining to kind of establish almost like a league of allies. He called it like the Macedonian party. And so he started like persuading- The League of Corinth. <laughs> the League of Corinth, right. So he started uh, uh, persuading people, uh, uh, city-states, that is uh, Greek city-states to join him with 
money, basically, and use those city states to pressure the other city states into submission. It was actually pretty, pretty unique, right? It was like a kind of divide and conquer with money. Uh, so you're right. It was called the League of Corinth. Uh, it was an alliance that included most of Greece, um, and Philip of Macedon was obviously their head, except Sparta. Um, so Sparta, uh, Philip, uh, there's this like very interesting uh, uh, story that goes that Philip had sent some emissaries over to Sparta saying, uh, and, I'll, and I'll quote here, you are advised to submit without further delay, for if I bring my army into your land, I will destroy your farms, slay your people, and raise your cities. And the Spartans responded, if. That was it. <laughs> so it was yeah, pretty. I, yeah. I heard that. I've, I've read that too. Yeah, I, I thought it was pretty badass. Um, I think probably realistically at this point, Sparta was almost a shell of itself. You know, it, it had its its power had been greatly diminished um especially after the wars um and i think i think philip just didn't feel like it i don't necessarily think he didn't want to fight with them but i just think he didn't feel like it i think i think he thought it was more trouble than anything and he already conquered most of greece anyway and he didn't particularly need sparta so like he just left them alone um but uh, this is the, this this is like where the the word the laconic phrase is, comes from. It's it's um it's basically like a, a short or a terse statement, um you know uh, and um I I actually think that this probably you know uh, uh was part of the reason why uh, uh let me start over. I think that Sparta specifically uh, didn't end up losing to um to philip just because they were ballsy like that um they probably would have gotten spanked if if philip had decided like all right cool let's go down and and smash them um because at this point he had most of greece under his under his belt and had a pretty large army and was much more you know um much much more uh, uh organized than than macedon used to be he was like, um, you ever see Team America, World Police? Yeah, of course. When the guy's like, he has balls. I like balls. Exactly. Exactly. One of those situations. Yeah, that, that's that's why I think he uh, uh, Philip never went down to Sparta to take. I appreciate on. your balls. You can keep your state, but yeah. probably out of respect for Sparta, Sparta's yeah. history too. He's just like, ah, oh, you know. I'll play. Whatever. I'll pay them respect. I don't need to dominate them. It's only a small chunk of land, anyway. Right. It wasn't that important. It's not like they have. Inf- they're going to have influence like anywhere outside of the right. State. They're they're it's surrounded by by yeah. the rest of the Macedonian Empire at that point. So, yeah, it didn't really matter. Um, Alexander would have burned that city alive and killed every <laughs> man, woman, and child. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. He would have like if, if. All right. Word. <laughs> what do you mean, F? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, he probably would have just barged in there and just did some Assyrian Empire shit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but but so, he got so so at this point he get, he gets assassinated. Philip, that is. Um, yeah, and and this story was fucking interesting because there's a lot of different accounts of like what might have happened. I know that uh, in some accounts it was like uh, Alexander himself tried to kill him so that he can gain you know power or whatever. But I don't like that story. Uh, mostly because it's boring and too cliche. Uh, I like the story, this story better. 
And again, keep in mind with, you know, uh, ancient history, we, we don't really know. Uh, and a lot of these are, are like not firsthand accounts. So uh, in this case, I'll editorialize a little bit and I'll pick the one that sounds the most interesting. So if you were going to make a story uh, like a movie or something like that, this would be the, the part, the story that you would choose. Um, so Philip uh, gets assassinated. So he was, um, he was actually in a uh, love quarrel with uh, his ex-boyfriend, uh, Pausanias. Now, uh, I want to warn you guys, this gets a little complicated because people have the same names. Um, so uh, Diodorus, who we talked about, um, you know, the, the historian there, uh, he basically you know, put forth this story, uh, but it was first mentioned by Aristotle. Uh, so according to Diodorus, the, um, uh, 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 there was this general called Attalus, and Attalus had blamed Pausonius of Orestes, so let's call him Pausonius O, um, for the death of his friend, um, who was also named Pausonius. So Pausonius O killed the other Pausonius, according to the general Attalus. But Philip and Pausonius O were getting it in, and um, and when when Philip left Pausonius O, uh, he ended up hooking up with the other Pausonius who evidently was the lover of this general guy, Attalus, right? So it's like a weird fucking love triangle between all of them. Uh, And Pisonius O ends up getting jelly that Philip is hooking up with the other Pisonius. And he ends up like insulting the other Pisonius in public. And, uh, you know, Macedonians, I I think you, you mentioned this before, but they're like super like, yeah, superstitious and like, you know, kind of toxic masculinity stuff. So in order to like get his honor back, Pozonius ends up like putting himself in harm's way uh, in battle to protect the king. Uh, and uh, he died as a result. Um, so uh, because uh, of this, you know, the general Attalus was super like uh, upset and he wanted to punish Pozonius O., and get back at him. And the way he did it was he got him fucking drunk and raped him at a party. And at this party was Philip II. And evidently, Philip didn't do shit about it. Um, and as a consolation for getting raped, uh, he promoted Pisonius O to the rank of Somatophylax. I don't know what rank that is, but apparently it was like a like an elevated title. And um, so... It was supposed that Pisonius O's motivation for killing Philip was to get back at Philip because he allowed him to be raped at a party. All because Philip was fucking around with the other Pisonius. That's kind of a hard story to follow, but it's fucking juicy. So a lot of uh, dude rape. Yep. It was, it was a, it was a, and, and all of this was like affairs too, because all, all of them, I'm, I'm presuming were married. Uh, so it was like a bunch of, um, uh, gay affairs, you know, like undercover and they were swapping Pazoniuses. It was, it was a very interesting story. Uh, and I happen to like it better than Alexander wanted the throne. So he had his father killed. That's fucking lame. That doesn't sound cool. 
Well, I mean, that's a theory uh, that Alexander murdered him. It's not proven. Uh, none of them are proven. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a theory that his wife killed him uh, mm-hmm. on, for the sake of Alexander. There's there's a lot of different theories. Right. We don't really know who, who killed him. Like, no. This is a guy who had no shortage of enemies. <laughs> yeah. So it literally could have been anyone who killed him. Um, but then there comes Alexander. Um, this is where he becomes the new king of Macedonia. And we don't really know that much about his Alexander as a young man. Um, one of the most famous books about him is called Fire from Heaven by Mary Renault. And this is what, um, this is what um, Oliver Stone's movie is based on. Mm-hmm. Um, the issue with this book is that it's historical fiction as in it is actually it's an historical fiction book like it's not meant to be like a um like a scholarly work it's meant to be entertaining like it's it's like the last kingdom if you guys watch it like right. you know, it's it's like the graphic the graphic movies. novel 300 by Frank Miller yeah. right <laughs> yeah so a lot of his childhood is grabbed from there we do know that he served in his. We do know that he served in his father's army as a cavalry officer. Um, Philip is eventually assassinated, but the ascension to the throne was really complicated. Um, when Philip was murdered, Alexander was one of the three, the the, the uh, last three surviving sons, and in Macedonia, illegitimate sons had equal claims to the throne. Alexander's half-brothers were threats to his throne. So according to Justin, who is another Roman historian, um, where we don't know when and where he lived, really, we just know that a lot of his work was used in the Middle Ages. Um, Once he had assumed a throne after Philip's murder, Alexander had his cousin, his half-brothers, his stepsisters, and the entire family is put to death. He ordered the execution of Philip's new wife and her young child, as well as her extended family to include Attalus, her guardian and well-known general. And according to Richard Gabriel, um, this this was murderous behavior indeed for a young man who had not shown any uh, propensity for violence at all during his young life and perhaps had not even yet slain a man in battle. So... One of the main themes of this book by Richard Gabriel that I had mentioned before was that Alexander was an outsider to the military. Mm. Um, instead of going to the royal page, he was tutored by Aristotle. And because of that, he, when he was finally given a command in the military, he felt a need to prove himself. Right, right. I think we often forget that Alexander ended up inheriting a lot from his father, and that's that's kind of the reason why we pointed out, um, you know, a lot of interesting facts about Philip II, because really Philip II laid the groundwork for, you know, uh, Alexander to succeed. Right? You know, he left him with a super wealthy empire around the Aegean Sea. Um, you know, he gave him the combined military power of the Macedonian army and all of the allied Greek states. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, he also got a good education um, from one of the greatest minds of the time, that was Aristotle. And um, he, I mean, for by all accounts, he was basically, you know, born with the ancient equivalent of a silver spoon up his ass. 
And that's kind of a good basis, I think, to start because, you know, you start with this like leg up and you start with this like big shoes to fill, big shadow to um, cast. And you're right. You, you know, he didn't come up from the military. He came up in this kind of aristocracy almost. And he did need feel that need to prove himself. And trust me, he had plenty of ego to go along with it. So um, I think that's a good good place to transition. Um so yeah, um, he was. Now we don't know if this is true. So in this book by Richard Gabriel, one of the claims that he makes is that there's no evidence of him going to the Royal Page School. The Royal Page School is the um, is the, um, the the West Point of Macedonia. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't know how sound that is, or you know if that's like a real convincing argument you know i think he he very well could have had some i i don't i frank frankly i have no idea and don't have an educated guess if he went to that school and was also tutored by aristotle or how that works so i you know i don't want to make a comment on that but it would make sense that he would at the very least feel underneath uh uh under the shadow of philip Mm -hmm. um because philip at that time you know may have been was the great conqueror like Mm-hmm. No one had conquered Greece yet except Philip. And it, he's kind of like the CEO of a company, like the guy who comes to America and he starts his company with nothing but with $5 in his pocket. Mm-hmm. And then he creates this massive corporation and then his son inherits. Then he gives a business to his son and then his son is, you know, forced to to expand the, the company even further. It's kind of like that dynamic. Right, right. You know, Alexander inherits this juggernaut army with which which is what's really important about this is that the officer corp too there is experienced they're war hardened um they had just been fighting for years so he inherits this just experienced um powerful army that he's able to utilize for his future conquest mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the personality traits that he has um really kind of make him a larger than life figure right so the, the traits like reckless courage and, and, and a huge ego were yeah. kind of a part of his ethos. Yeah, I mean, talking about huge ego, you know, you, you're we were talking a little bit about how he would wear Persian clothes, but I mean, it, it goes even even deeper than that. I, I think he basically inserted himself throughout his conquests into the mythologies and the religions of all of the people he conquered. For some examples. He went to the tomb of Achilles in Troy, uh, which, you know, was like symbolic to the Greeks in one way or another. So they, you know, they heralded him in that respect. In in, in Jerusalem, in the Levant, uh, he ended up uh, like basically like, quote unquote, respecting their God, uh, you know, God. And, um, it, you know, he accepted a place in their prophecies, right? Uh, so he ends up in in the in the in the Christian Bible. In Egypt, uh, he took on the role of quote liberator uh, from the Persians, I believe. Yeah, and expanded the freedom of the Egyptian peoples, and thus he named himself the uh, the son of the god Amun and the king of the universe. Uh, what else did he do? Um, yep, yeah, I mean, and so wearing Persian clothes was like this small thing he would go around and basically accept all of the titles and all the honorariums and like exalt himself and and insert himself into 
their mythology and in their religions because the Greek culture wasn't enough for him. It had, he had to be in everybody's culture. He had to be in everybody's mythology and in everybody's um, religion. That's just the way he rolled. That's how big his ego was. Well, he thought he was a god. Right. At, at one point. He thought mm -hmm. he thought he was the direct descendant of Hercules. Right. And apparently so, the son of Amun. So Or was it know. or was it was it um the direct son of Hercules or the direct son of Achilles? Uh both. They both. they had think, like a, they both. had like a baby together, right? Oh, Somehow. Yeah. yeah. And then they that made him. I mean, Alexander the Great even makes his way to like Islamic culture as well. Yep, everywhere. Like, he's, he literally put himself everywhere, everywhere he went. He he's as far out as like like Pakistani culture and like in the Indus Valley, uh, in the Indus uh, subcontinent, like in in India, in Indian culture. Like he he goes everywhere, and he makes sure that when he gets there, that he does whatever it is that's going to make him look larger than life like whether you know whatever whatever that might be if it means he has to wear the clothes of your king he's going to do that if it means that he's going to go visit some sacred place and like pretend like he's a person of prophecy he's going to do that too that's that's just that was his style so i have a a, a passage or a quote from um, a psychiatrist uh, his name is nasser uh, gaim uh, he's a academic psychiatrist at George Mason University, and he has a book called A First-Rate Madness. And in his book, he developed 11 personality types based on the lives of 11 world leaders. So according to Nasser, the personality that most resemble Alexander's is that of William Sherman, the famous American Civil War general. Both suffer from what are called biologically abnormal temperaments, meaning both had traits that were divergent from average behavior. Abnormal temperaments are to be distinguished from mental illness in that there is no implication that the subject suffers from the presence of a mental disease, but only that the demonstrated personality traits are divergent from the norm. Temperament abnormalities resemble lesser expressions or milder versions of mental disease, but with that, with that caveat, that the abnormalities are present all the time while mood episodes like manic phases and deep depressions are episodic. Neither Sherman nor Alexander were manic depressive, but both possessed abnormal temperaments with characteristics that were milder versions of manic depressive illness bipolar disorder, but less severe. Individuals possessing this type of personality tend to be highly self-confident, possess high energy levels, need little sleep, are given to rapid speech and impulsive behaviors, including a tendency toward explosive anger, can be doggedly determined in their pursuit of a task, often often avoiding contrary evidence and experience, and are strongly resilient in dealing with objections and hardship. Um, Hyperthymic personalities are also creative thinkers in their ability to think and see things in broad terms, a trait psychologists call integrative complexity. They often make connections between seemingly disparate things leading to divergent thinking that others find difficult to follow or comprehend. Integrative thinking, the tendency to link things together in, together in different ways, is the basis of creativity, but can also lead the person to formulate grandiose plans that only make sense to him. 
Hyperthymic personalities are risk takers, often ignoring or not seeing the obstacles to their goals. Divergent and creative thinker thinking can lead to paranoia with the person suddenly <laughs> believing himself surrounded by enemies and spies. Hyperthymic personalities tend towards heavy alcohol use and active libido, activities, activities that soothe them. Hyperthymic personalities are not disconnected from reality the way the mentally ill often are, but have distorted view of what's happening when measured against average or normal comprehension of occurring events. All right, I'm going to take a deep breath, and then I'm going to ask you, who does that sound like? I mean, at the expense of sounding like a typical liberal, it sounds like Trump. I mean, obviously not entirely, right? Like, it isn't drink, and I can't speak to his active libido, but I can certainly say that a lot of these tendencies are super similar, right? Um, you know, the, the couple points that jump out at me are, you know, uh, rapid speech, impulsive behaviors, explosive anger dogged determination in pursuit of tasks uh the put the bit about <laughs> avoiding contrary evidence and experience uh definitely comes to mind um also uh um kind of ignoring or not seeing obstacles to their goals um you know constantly the paranoia uh the person being believing that you're uh, surrounded by enemies or spies, you know, like all this kind of sounds super. And, and, and it also goes to say at the end, like, like you pointed out that it's not necessarily that they are mentally ill. It's just that if you compare them against like the average and or quote normal comprehension of how events occur, they just have a real fucking slanted way of looking at things that is just totally not normal. Not, you know, it's not, not, average let's just put it that way i think that you don't have to have tds to um yeah have trump pop into your mind when you read that like right. i thought the when I'm, i was reading that I'm like oh that's that's trump i that <laughs> i think that is that sounds exactly like how trump acts minus the drinking and right i don't know the libido things i don't know how much he gets it although he i mean I he mean, does he, grab him by the pussy, he does so. <laughs> yet he has had He's, he's got children. Wives. Right. Um, but it sounds like, based off the sources, Alexander the Great was that type of guy. Yeah. He, he was that guy. <laughs> You're saying that Alexander the Great, my hero, who I was named after, is after <laughs> Trump? Uh, if Trump heard that, Make he'd be Macedonia like, hey, great again. I'm Alexander <laughs> the Great. Look at these guys. They think I'm Alexander the Great. I was great. Yeah. Um, make Macedonia great again. I don't know. I thought that was I thought that was really interesting when I read that. Um, so the ancient historians they offer perspectives on why Alexander behaved the way he did as well, and their explanations are a lot more simple. Uh, Plutarch tells that tells us that Alexander was jealous and resentful of his father. I don't oh, like that daddy, story. Daddy, I like, can't do it, Daddy. The, the daddy, daddy, I can't thing, live yeah. up to your standards, Daddy. No, I don't um, love that. I don't love that. I don't, I don't, I don't love that Oedipal complex nonsense. It's, it's just tired. I was just having Daddy issues. Um, I mean, his his father was the great national king, and he wanted to surpass his achievements. And um, I think... Some historians have went into the area of like, well, 
he was never home because he was always out campaigning. So he was always with his mom, and his mom was batshit crazy and kind of warped his mind. Because she was a barbarian, right? Uh huh. Well, his mom certainly seems batshit crazy. If you well, she was a snake Olympus. witch, right? <laughs> she was a snake witch. Yeah, didn't you say yeah, that? Her really? story alone. <laughs> yeah. Her story alone is fucking crazy. Yeah, like, she's one of the most interesting women ever. Um, it's she's very interesting. And a lot so, of the examples of his risk taking behavior are are very apparent. So mm-hmm. you know, one example would be the fact that he didn't stop marching east until basically his troops threatened a mutant to have a mutiny. Um, <laughs> yeah, because he was just going to keep on marching through India. And he was going to go straight to Japan going and going and going and going, and, and eventually his soldiers were like, "We're not doing this anymore. Like we want to go home. Like this is." Also, they were super for... afraid of war elephants, so that was a thing. Yeah, that war elephants, um, but also like malaria, shit yeah. like that, jungle <laughs> yeah. diseases. Mm-hmm. No one wanted to keep on marching that way. No, they were um, also on on the road for like twelve years at that point, or some shit like that. So yeah, I mean, at one point you're just kind of like, hey, man, like I accumulated all this wealth fighting and looting for you but like now i just want to go home and like chill farm <laughs> chill yeah yeah alexander would also fly headfirst into battle with really reckless abandonment so there's all sorts of stories about him scaling walls and him leading cavalry charges and him just doing like things that generals normally don't do just putting himself in complete danger so whatever you say about him, he wasn't a bitch. Right. Or at least um, we're told that he's not a bitch. What's that? At least we were told that he was not at least a bitch. He, at least we were told. But it seems that, I mean, I, mean, I don't... Every like account really of him blood, seems like he wasn't. That kind of like that reckless courage. Right. Um, now, this actually brings me to an interesting, uh, an interesting point. So one of the injuries, he had a lot of injuries. Um, he had over seven really, really bad injuries throughout his throughout his campaigns. Mm-hmm. Um, one of those injuries was a severe concussion that may have given him permanent brain damage. Oh yeah. So during a battle in Afghanistan, um, he had a rock thrown at the back of his head. Very unclimactic. Just somebody, somebody threw, just threw somebody just threw a rock at his fucking head. Um. Kind of like Mardonius mm-hmm. in the Battle of Plataea. A Spartan threw a rock at his head and killed him. So this was so bad, um, according to the historian Arian, who is considered the most reliable. And many of the other historians write the same thing, um, that his troops thought he had died. So um, He got knocked out real good. <laughs> we don't yeah. know where he was hit. It was most likely at the back of his head. Um, And this is used to explain a lot of his really bizarre behavior in his later years. Mm. So, um, again, you know, one of the writers I was reading a lot of was Richard Gabriel. And he, I kind of do trust him on this because he was a, um, a doctor. 
It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. In the Army, and he, what, what he's, his take is that that rock in the back of his head probably caused him severe, very severe, um, a very severe concussion that resulted in a, in tra- in a traumatic brain injury right. that um, that further prohibited, you know, his mental capacity. Um, Literally knocked a screw loose. Yeah, because he was like the symptoms that he, that he had were like being bedridden for like three months. Mm-hmm. Um, like not being able to get up, like quivering in his tent. Um, he had temporary blindness. I have, I've had a concussion before. I had a pretty bad concussion too. And um, I was si- I was very sick for two days, like mm. just nonstop puking and throwing up. Um, but after that, I was I was fine after about a week or so. I felt I started feeling like myself. Um, it, do you know Antonio? You, you know who Antonio Brown is? I I do actually. Yeah, he's okay. he, he football player. I know the, spo- uh, I know sports. I know sports um, ball. So Antonio Brown was had a really bad an interesting hit. case. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he, after this hit, he went crazy. He went. Nuts. A lot of people crazy say like a lot of people like to trace <laughs> this because Antonio Brown was a likable player in the NFL for years. Uh, he was seen as one of the better guys, like a, a higher character guy, someone who worked hard, who went to a uh, Division One AA school with mm-hmm. a fifth-round draft pick, who was able to make himself into the best wide receiver, um, you know, in a generation. He has this really bad hit in a helmet-to-helmet hit, and it looked terrible. It looks sounded sounded even worse. And he wakes up, and over the next couple of years, he starts acting nuts, just like not like like exhibiting behavior that he didn't exhibit before this head injury. There's this so one story just, where he like threw a bunch of furniture out of his 14th floor window, <laughs> like, uh, and apparently he almost hit a kid on the patio. Yeah, him. he uh, almost he, hit a kid. Yeah, he was he, like speeding drinking apparently he, he he did a whole lot of uh, domestic abuse um with his former trainer and with his like girlfriends and things like that um he was accused of rape a bunch of times uh felony burglary of a vehicle misdemeanor battery he pled guilty to <laughs> criminal mischief he pr- pled guilty to like this guy got into a whole lot of trouble after he he got hit in the head like a lot and Aaron Hernandez, when they did the CAT scan on his brain, mm-hmm. they found that he had the most CTE out of anyone they've ever, you know, out of anyone's, uh, or maybe it wasn't the most, but um, it was he was lot. around yeah. 30 or so when he had died. And, you know, they said it looked like the brain of someone who had been playing football for 50 years or so 
he had very serious brain issues. Um, not to say that he murdered those people because of the, the brain issues, but um, it's context. I, I, right. From what I've seen as far as the science with head injuries when it comes to football or any really any sport where you're taking blows to the head, I think those consequences are, are, are very, very much real. Yeah, they're, no, they're very it's, real, and they can. It's, it's very possible to cause lasting brain damage, um, or aberrant behavior, or boxing. Mm-hmm. What's that? Or aberrant behavior in general, right? Like even or if you don't go it, way, way off the deep end and like kill people, you might end up having like these bouts of like uncontrollable anger, or like you know just mood swings. Generally speaking, right? So even like the light um, side effects for it. Uh, can 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 affect you greatly and if and if we're pulling it back to alexander the great here if he is you know smacked by a rock in the back of his head and he ends up bedridden for you know by some accounts for three months as you said you can imagine that that probably caused a pretty strong brain injury and if all of these historians are saying like after he got hit with the rock he started acting really fucking weird you know those things kind of line up right like obviously we're doing like some you know some forensics that can't be done because we don't have firsthand accounts or like CTE scans for Alexander the, uh, the great's brain, but you can make some guesses and it sounds about right. Well, in the case of the football, that's like, you know, that's long-term abuse. This is one blow to the head. So I don't, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I don't really know what the difference is as far as like the, uh, long-term effects for, you know, one versus the other. But um, it's kind of a different thing from what like most football players are getting CTE from. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, and because this is completely bro science for me, you know, right. it's, it's right, bro science for everyone when they say that Antonio Brown got hit stupid. Right. Um, but it's po- it certainly seems fucking it's possible. Like, likely, There's this... like just based off his behavior before and after the hit. Yeah. Um, There's this one story so think, of like this guy that worked on a railroad a long time ago. I forget his name, but uh, he was like laying some dynamite and then, you know, went to go put in a rod uh, and the dynamite um, exploded and the rod shot through his face, through his skull, went out the back of his skull and like flew out and like, you know, they found it like fucking f- super far away later, but he lived, right? And this was back like in the old West. How the hell with, did he live? I fucking do not know. Uh, but he lived he, so much so that he was he like walked to the hospital or some shit like that. Forget the exact. I'll, I'll Google it later. But um, the, the story was nuts. But the point though is that after he got this brain injury, because there's no question he got a brain injury. The fucking rod went through his head, right? Uh, after that, apparently he developed like what we would call you know uh, Tourette syndrome. Like dude was like curse up a storm and like twitch and shit like that and like just be generally like erratic aberrant behavior so if you have a traumatic brain injury even even just the one if it's bad enough i think there are plenty of cases to point to the fact that that even if it's just the one and not like a sustained like years worth of football brain injuries as an example i think there's also a case to be made there as well but again brain uh, bro science right <laughs> like we're just we're just guessing bro there's always some good bro science and bro history <laughs> yeah we're totally speculating and, and you know robert gabriel's speculating as well um but i think it's i think it's really i think it's interesting to think about at the very least um to throw that into the equation now 
you have to when examining Alexander though you have to kind of go over the actual massacres he did and and honestly it's really hard to because there's just there's, there's too many to count because he was campaigning for so many years but I'll just go over some quick ones that he's known for and I probably won't even get to the really big ones either but here are some of the earlier ones um so one of the first things that he did was he he um burned Thebes to the ground so Thebes was one of the great city-states when Philip II conquered Greece um, he created the League of Corinth and Thebes left after he died and as payback Alexander went and he according to Diodorus um, as a slaughter mounted in every corner of the city was piled high with corpses no one one could have failed to pity the plight of the unfortunate more than 6,000 Thebans were killed and 30,000 more sold into slavery so that was an ancient source but um, it seems like he did burn the city to the ground uh, most likely as a message to other Greek city-states um, there is a battle of Granicus. So, according to Plutarch, when when Alexander landed in Anatolia, uh, in Anatolia, um, modern-day Turkey, um, eighteen thousand Greek mercenaries tried to surrender to him and, and join his army, and instead, Alexander slaughtered every single one of them. So and this Plutarch, is where he's he's going from Robert Baratheon to just straight up Daenerys Targaryen, right? Yeah, and just like just straight up burning them all, you know. Exactly. He, he um, P- Plutarch says that this was out of passion rather than judgment mm. when explaining the the, the killing. Um, according to uh, Quintus Curtius, he killed the civilian population of Gaza, so at least 10,000 people, and then he tortured the Persian governor, and he enjoyed it. And it's actually interesting, the story about him torturing the Persian governor. Um, he brought this guy out, and he was like, um, you know, you better obey me. I'm Alexander the Great. I'm the best. And the guy just, like, looked at him and didn't say anything. And he's like, you don't answer me. And then he tortured him with the chariot. He, like, dragged him along a chariot like Achilles did to Hector <laughs> after he killed Paris. Or not not killing Paris, uh, uh p- p- what what's his boy's name uh patrius patrice i forget achilles is my name achilles is boy who he whatever it's not important patroclus yeah patroclus let's call him patrice um probably one of the worst things that he did was he um burned down uh persepolis which was the per the capital of Persia, and in doing this, he they did it. He did it in a drunk orgy. There was like a bunch. The story is that they were just hanging out. Him and his friends were drinking in camp, and they got drunk, and they're like, "Let's just burn this fucker down." It's fucked up. It's nuts. And the the tragedy of it is that they destroyed so much history in that. Like there was, there was so many important things that they destroyed by burning down that city. Mm-hmm. Like think about all the, the sources that we don't get from the Greco Persian wars from the Persian side, because they burnt down the capital. Right. Like there was no reason to do that. No. 
And it go and it just goes on and on the stories about like you know them going and eradicating tribes and and just ethnically cleansing tribes and different peoples as they're marching eastward. It's it's pretty bad and pretty fucked up. And you have to ask um, when and where does um, PTSD come in? Like, do these Greek soul, like, do these Macedonian soldiers, or do soldiers in the ancient war, in the ancient world in general, um, are they experiencing the same type of combat fatigue um, as? what's recorded in modern history since world war one because the greeks were aware of mental Ill illness caused by the trauma of war and where the um and, and they were the first to practice you know a sophisticated form of psychiatry um greek literature is actually filled with accounts of soldiers driven by driven mad by war just just look at like the just look at the uh, the iliad in the mm -hmm. Odyssey, mm -hmm. there's so many accounts of soldiers being driven mad. Um, um, Achilles literally goes into a berserker mode at one point, and and the whole book is about how he goes kind of crazy. Like when you think about the the Iliad, Achilles, Achilles. Why am I saying his name so shitty? Achilles. Achilles is slowly going mad throughout the entire war and it ends with him um kind of just doing this barbaric act against humanity um desecrating the body of hector and then on the, and then in the odyssey he's in hell because odysseus will find him um in hades and him being and he's miserable and he's like i would spend one day as a far like to get out of here i would uh you know live my life as a farmer i forget exactly what he says but he's miserable and hates mm -hmm. it's a really drab place yeah so herodotus actually recorded the symptoms of the first clinical case of uh of a, a psychiatric collapse in battle so he tells us that he tells us that soldiers along the battle line study themselves or study themselves for the attack all up and down the line, men shook with fear, vomited, and lost control of their bladders and bowels. And this is the Battle of Marathon he's talking about. Mm. So even the Greek writers at the time were taking account of, you know, people, soldiers, um, in almost a panic before the fight. Um, and whether in ancient or modern times, exposure to the stress of war most likely um seriously impacted one's sanity and ability to function in a normal society and it's it is unlike it's unlikely to expect that alexander's 13-year exposure to violence and, and slaughter um might have seriously impacted his mental health right. because the battlefield at this time like a ancient battlefield has a lot of sensory stressors everywhere so there's mutilated bodies there's soldiers screaming in pain there's you know your loss of your friends there's rotting flesh um mm -hmm. i would imagine it's a really awful kind of brutal place to be yep and it, it may be likely that the rate of 
psychiatric casualties were even higher in ancient conflicts um, because all the killing that took place on these battlefields were at a close range. Right. So it prolonged exposure to combat and uh, in, in, in this military environment may have really just kind of deranged Alexander you know, throughout the campaign and progressively made him more violent and more paranoid because towards the end of his life, you know, he was killing his friends like left and right, um, killing people for like small slights. Um, an interesting, the best part of this book by Rot Richard uh, Gabriel is, is um, his book where he, where he proposes the theory that Alexander was, suffering from raging PTSD. So I actually have part of this pulled up and um, I just want to share this with you and see what you think. All right, I'll take a stab at it. Um, Soldiers' prolonged exposure to war can create an almost constant sense and expectation of betrayal by those around him, destroying any capacity for trust and leading to the individual's psychological isolation. Research has shown that soldiers in this condition are seven times more likely to suffer a major depression and 11 times more likely to suffer a dysthymic disorder, a fluctuating state of depression. Alexander nursed a sense of betrayal that developed into a deep paranoia. As his wars went on, he began to see enemies everywhere, even among his closest friends and comrades. In every case, Alexander dealt with his fear by having the conspirators killed. A battle-hardened soldier either quickly acquires a set of survival skills or he dies. The soldier's hypervigilance is accompanied by the need to react quickly and with violence. Soon, the soldier may lose the ability to respond to simple disagreements or other social situations in any other way, leading to the activation of combat survival skills in other other than combat situations. This explains why a simple misunderstanding can often lead to a violent physical attack, say, in a bar, when a combat veteran perceives himself insulted or being stared at. Alexander, like many veterans, seems to have forgotten how to deal with even the most minor difficulty with anything but violence. In India, he hanged a group of Indian philosophers who had the temerity to disagree with him and had the and had the defeated Persian commander at Gaza dragged around the city behind a chariot because the man remained silent when Alexander threatened him. Achilles' first reaction to Agamemnon's order to turn over the slave girl was to reach for his sword and kill his commander. Alcoholism and drug use are common symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, and both are employed by the soldier as a way to numb the psychic pain that afflicts him and reduce the effects of his other symptoms. There is no doubt by the end of his life, Alexander was surely a heavy drinker and perhaps even an alcoholic in the clinical sense. His increased drinking coincided with the clear emergence of other symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder and character disorder. Post-traumatic stress can lead to suicide. Two of the most common triggers of suicide in veterans are guilt and despair. Watching one's comrades die in a situation where you have to survive or having ordered soldiers to do something that costs them their lives often, produce, often produces survivor's guilt, a sense that it was my fault or it should have been me that died. One set of permanent psychiatric reactions to prolonged war stress are called character disorders. The terms are somewhat misleading in that they seem to imply that soldiers 
characters have been disordered by conscious action. This is not the case, however. Correctly understood, character disorder is a condition in which prolonged stress of war creates problems so deeply seated that they become part of the soldier's personality. Character disorders include stable obsessions, st stable obsessional states in which the soldier becomes fixated on certain actions or things. Paranoia accompanied by irascibility, anxiety, and depression, often accompanied by the belief that soldier is that the soldier is surrounded by enemies who threaten his safety, schizoid trends leading to hypersensitivity and isolation, epileptoid character reactions in which the soldier becomes irritable, stubborn, egocentric, and aggressive, accompanied by periodic rages, the development of extreme dramatic religiosity, and ultimately, the degeneration into a psychopathic personality. Character disorders represent a fundamental altering of the soldier's personality that is extremely difficult to reverse. All too commonly, the symptoms accompany the soldier for the rest of his life. So, I found that um, very interesting to apply that to ancient figures. Because not only could you apply that to just Alexander the Great, you could also apply that to a lot of the other brutal warlords of our time. Or, you know, the warlords who are on the battlefield, like maybe Genghis Khan or Julius Sargon of Akkad. Sargon of Akkad mm -hmm. or... or uh, Sargon II of, mm -hmm. of the Assyrian Empire. Um, you know, maybe you could apply that. You know, these... You have to think that getting up in somebody's face and stabbing them or poking them with something sharp and seeing them dying and seeing your friends die the exact same way mm -hmm. has to That's gotta have fuck a you profound yeah. mm -hmm. impact on your psyche. And because, again, these people aren't that different from us. Like, they had the same fears in battle. Right. They're still human. Um, mm -hmm. After 13 years of uh, intense uh, war campaigning, I think it's probably likely that he experienced some form of PTSD that degraded right. his personality. So right. um, I guess covering this... You know, we we hit kind of three things that may have impacted Alexander the Great's mental health. You know, his um, his um, possible PTSD, his his personality disorder, um, along with his brain injury um, that he that he suffered. There may have been a lot more. Um, we didn't even get into his alcohol, his uh, addiction to alcohol, right? Which I'm certain sure certainly didn't help him. Um, raging drunk, right? His ra his raging alcoholism. Um, but do you want to talk about? I guess maybe to end this up and talk about just like Hellenization and just you know some of the the consequences of yeah yeah for sure. And I, I, this is just calling back to something we we spoke about early on in in the uh, show here. But you know Alexander he he did more than just like conquer and destroy things. He he also built things. But I wouldn't exactly say that he built them like on purpose. Um, you got to remember that that the the area that Alexander the Great conquered 
was something like 2 million square miles, right? And it spanned across a lot of different cultures, a lot of different religions, even just a lot of different languages, right? So language being one of the more important ones, you know, Greek as an example, and, and specifically his you know, flavor of Greek, the Macedonian dialect, you know, went from being a language that was spoken in basically a tiny little corner of the world into the official language of an entire empire that stretched from the Adriatic Sea to the Himalayas, right? So it's not an easy feat. And in order to kind of do that and, and unify all of these disparate cultures into a single civilization, you know, Alexander definitely imposed a type of Greek style city-state, you know, um, template across the entire empire. Um, but I think Hellenization, which refers to you know, uh, the adoption of Greek culture across, you know, this region, uh, during the time of Alexander, I think, I think that kind of happened, you know, as an, as an offshoot, like it wasn't intentional, uh, as an example, he would set up a city, right. That was like a Greek style city, you know, uh, where Persepolis was previously as an example. Right. And then, um, he would appoint some, you know, random Greek guy, uh, to lead that administrative center. Uh, and, you know, perhaps out of fear for Alexander the Great or out of reverence, because remember, he also liked to insert himself, you know, into their culture and, and into their religions and make himself an exalted figure. Um, but a lot of the times these these uh, uh, conquered peoples, when they would set up these Greek style city in their in their neighborhood, they would try to make their Greek administrator feel at home. And each of them would try to push the limit on how how much more Greek can we be, right? How many more columns can we put on this fucking building? You know, um, and many of them adopted Greek as their language as a result. But I don't think that was necessarily like an intention of, of Alexander the Great. I think it was like kind of an end result of all of the things that he did, right? Either when, you know, he was either brutal with these people so they were fucking fearful of him or his giant ego created this like era of him like especially if we think about the uh the egyptian city alexandria which was obviously named after alexander um they thought of him as a liberator right it wasn't like oh shit this is you know this guy's a fucking nut job let's make him happy it, they really liked him right like they very very much liked him so they wanted to just be as as Greek as possible, just to like curry favor from him. And, you know, what's kind of unfortunate, you know, is that Alexander never got to enjoy the fruits of his labor, you know, because he was on this campaign for the entirety of his rulership. And, and as you point out, you know, he died uh, along the way, and he, he ended up dying in, in, in Babylon. We're not really sure exactly where, um, or exactly how, to be honest, that there's a lot of different uh, opinions of poison, sickness, or just straight up, he was tired, uh, exhaustion there. Um, but you know, there's a, a rumor, like, there's a there's a conspiracy theory that Aristotle poisoned him. Really? I didn't hear that one. That's yeah. interesting. That's one of the more uh, kind of far out there ones. But I could see it because towards the end of his day, he probably made a lot of fucking enemies, like, like, like we pointed out earlier. And what's interesting about this is that he he didn't exactly have like an heir to give everyone to, and in true, like it was totally on brand for him at the time. Instead of naming a successor, uh, he was just like the the empire goes to the strongest. He just that's all he said, and so like way to set up 
your your kingdom, your empire that you just spent 13 years building. Way to just like take a match and just burn that shit down. Because <laughs> like what resulted from that is like literally everyone fighting to take control of this massive fucking empire, right? And like his just his last batshit crazy thing that he decided to do was make everybody fight for his empire. You know, like like that's that's how fucking crazy this guy was. Like to the bitter end. But it was, it was totally on brand. It was totally on brand for him, you know? And dude uh, the um the funeral wars or no the funeral games is what mm-hmm. they call it. So the when they divvied up Alexander's uh, empire because mm-hmm. all of his generals were superstars too. Right. Like exactly. he had some he had awesome generals. So you have um all of them scrambling to like carve up pieces of this empire and you right. have like these really weird like at some point Ptolemy, his childhood friends who you know who establishes uh, the Ptolemaic the, kingdom in, in the Egypt, Ptolemaic right? kingdom in Egypt, mm-hmm. um, and uh, Cleopatra is uh, the Cleopatra the seventh that we know uh, that we think of who got involved with Caesar and Mark Anthony. Um, she's a direct descendant of him. Um, Evidently, he ends up like stealing the body from another general. I forget, like one general has the body. They end up stealing the body because the rightful heir is, would be the one who performs the funeral. The body, like, right. There's mm-hmm. just all sorts of like crazy shit happens. But I think if you wanted to make a, t- a million dollar TV show, like a new Game of Thrones, I think you make a TV show about like the first season, first couple episodes, Alexander the Great dies. He dies. And then it's about like, the split up the game, the split up of uh, the empire, and like everyone backstabbing each other and trying mm-hmm. to get a piece of it. Like so, like the I four empires: be... the kingdom of Macedon, the kingdom of Pergamon, and Asia Minor. We talked about the Ptolemaic uh, kingdom in Egypt, and then the Seleucid Empire in the Far East. So, like the four of them warring against each other. This would be like your your million dollar pitch to Netflix. I think that would be the new Game of Thrones. You could even name it Funeral Games. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That would be so interesting because then you could have I'd also strong. There's a bunch of strong f- female character you could have because his mom was still in the picture. Right. Like, um, so you'd have that kind of diversity to, you know. Uh, you'd have Cleopatra coming at you. You'd have a lot of interesting, very interesting uh, characters. I think it would be make for a really good t- television show. I think it would be a lot better than making a show off like the Greco-Persian Wars or or something like that. Hmm. Yeah, that, I'd, I'd watch it. I think that would be a great show um, if you were going to do something. And obviously, you fictionalize it. Like, you know, you make it a good story. You you sacrifice you really don't historical have to. accuracy. <laughs> you don't you really don't have to because you it, have to take liberties, though. Yeah, you have to take course, storytelling liberties. Mm-hmm. Um, another really good uh, show that they could make based off an historical event is the. Um, the fall of the Roman Republic, not the Roman Empire, the Roman Republic, but like the 25 years before, like the time of Julius Caesar, because there was the Roman Civil Wars before, like 50 years before Julius Caesar took power. That's really interesting politics as well mm. that like went on. It's a bunch of backstabbing. But I mean, maybe an HBO producer is watched listening listening, to this episode and Mm -hmm. maybe we can pitch some tv ideas we've got plenty of ancient history ones 
Yeah. We were, oh yeah, somebody emailed me, uh, one of our listeners emailed me uh, with some ideas about musicals. Remember when we talked about? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Send us an idea of a good musical. Yeah. Um, Let's do that I again. Think, yeah. Yeah, we should do that again. Yeah, that was really funny. I don't have the email up in front of me right now, but I appreciate you reaching out. Uh, we had asked our listeners to send us ideas on what would be what musical I had just saw Hamilton and I was like, what is the best I like historical topic that you can make a musical on? And I said that um, to do one on the Richard uh, on Richard Nixon and the Shah's relationship, <laughs> the Shah and I, the Shah of Iran, <laughs> the Shah and I, <laughs> the Shah, the Shah and I, um, all right. I think we are, uh, yeah, we're very much time. over. So, do you want to? Um, yeah, let's end just this let's show. just wrap it up, and uh, right. you know, if, if then you want. do you want to talk about do you want to talk about the inauguration? Um, and for our Patreon, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Let's All right. Do that. So, what we're gonna do is that we're gonna wrap up this episode. Um, thank you so much for listening to this uh, hour and a half program on Alexander the Great. We really hope you learned a few things and found things interesting. Uh, make sure to rate and review the podcast. That is number one way to help us grow. Um, we recently hit over 400 reviews, Woo. which is really awesome. We, you know, I, I, I remember when we were begging you guys to get 100 reviews. So um, we're at 400. Keep on rating and reviewing the podcast. It really helps us grow. And tell your friends about this show. Share this podcast, um, you know, on your social media accounts. Uh, you know, spread the word. Be we built this show completely on word of mouth, 100% word of mouth. That's how we built this show, and that's how we're going to continue to grow. Uh, tell people to listen to bro history. Um, and then if you want to support us, if you um, want to listen to more content, um, we will be putting a Patreon episode out. Um, we're going to talk about the inauguration in a moment. So you can find us at Patreon at Bro History. Um, you can support us uh, for you know one dollar, three dollars, five dollars a month, whatever you have. Uh, we appreciate the support. Um, it really does mean a lot. Uh, so join us on Patreon. You also get access to our Slack account where um, our listeners and I and us, uh, you know, we talk and communicate and you know shoot the shit and. Just have fun on it. Um, so join us there. And um, let's uh, wrap this up and start talking inauguration. Sounds good. Peace, everybody. All right. Peace. Peace.